From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Every year, about 140,000 Americans are diagnosed with colorectal cancer. The good news? The disease is highly preventable by getting screened beginning at age 50. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. We'll learn more about screening and prevention from a Mayo Clinic expert. It's virtually curable in over 95, even 100% in some series. So with effective screening, we can make a difference. Also on the program, fetal surgery, how in utero procedures can correct some common birth defects. And we'll hear about a pilot study that's using video visits for routine surgical follow-up. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, according to the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, colorectal cancer is the fourth most common cancer in the United States. And, and some statistics show that it's actually the third most common cancer in the United States. But one thing pretty much everyone agrees on is that it is the second leading cause of death from cancer. Now, most cases of cancer do begin as a small, non-cancerous, benign, clump of cells called a a polyp, and over time, some of these polyps unfortunately turn into cancer. Polyps may be small and produce few, if any, symptoms. For this reason, doctors recommend regular screening tests to help prevent colon cancer by identifying and removing polyps before they are cancerous. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and here to discuss colorectal cancer, gastroenterologist... Dr. David Alquist. Dr. Alquist, great to have you on the program. Thank you, Tom. Colon cancer, the third or fourth most common cancer diagnosed in the United States. It's a good time to start thinking about it, isn't it? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, There is a challenge here, as you've alluded to, but there is an enormous opportunity to make a difference, to change the outcome from one of the most common cancer killers to one of the least common with effective screening. Even in the last 10 years, it seems like to talk about awareness for colon cancer doesn't even seem like it should be needed anymore. But it's changed a lot even in 10 years, hasn't it? There have been some, definitely some positive changes, new tools to screen. Uh, The the remaining challenges, however, I think should be brought to the the fore. And is that still convincing people? I think education is a big part of that. you know, the the good news is we know that detecting polyps before they become cancer can actually prevent this cancer. And if you detect the, the cancer at the earliest stage before symptoms, it's virtually curable in, in over 95, even 100% in some series. So with effective screening, we can make a difference. The challenge is... Even knowing that, mm-hmm. uh, records show, not not surveys, but records show that only about half of the population has been screened. So there's a big gap, therefore there's a big opportunity. You know, there's a recent article published just, uh, I think, this week, uh, and it was a new American Cancer Society study, and it, it seemed to be, at least to me, of real concern, and that is, the article said that people who were born in 1990... Uh, or later, have double the risk of colon cancer and four times the risk of rectal cancer. True? 
Yes, uh, there have been a number of studies, Tom, that have shown that colorectal cancer is increasing in younger people. In fact, uh, in the last few years, more than 11% of all colorectal cancers have occurred between ages of 40 and 50, where we're not currently screening that population. And there's even, the, the increases relatively are even greater in those younger than 40. So there is a trend here. Uh, we haven't explained that. It may be related to obesity, uh, to inactivity, which we know both of those are risk factors for colorectal cancer, but there may also be environmental exposures. There needs to be research to explain that. That's a trend that's worrisome, and we have to change that. Because in the adult population, there has been a, a gradual uh, but small decline in the number of cases of colorectal cancer, right? Right. It's It's been it's real. It's been relatively small and relatively flat in the last uh, five to ten years uh, but there it's been it's moving in the right direction for those older than 50 definitely so if you're born before uh, or uh, 1990 or after it's interesting that you have a, yeah. you're at increased risk for yeah. colorectal cancer yeah. incredible yeah we're, yeah we're going to need to re-examine screening guidelines which currently state age 50 and over you know with the uh, availability of you know, minimally invasive tools, uh, there may be an opportunity here to start at a younger age. It all starts with polyps. What is it that causes a polyp to begin or mm-hmm. to grow? Where does that be- where does that start? Yeah, we, we don't know. Mm. It's it's likely starts with the DNA is altered in some way in those cells. Uh, radiation, chemical uh, changes, the DNA is altered, and then it it, it programs the cells to grow differently. Uh, and polyps grow at a different rate. Not all become, in fact, most do not become cancer. It's the largest ones that we know once they've sort of declared themselves larger than one or two centimeters, they continue to grow, and uh, those need to be detected early in order to prevent the cancer. What happens to the ones that do not become cancerous? Do they ultimately get absorbed back into the body, or do they just stay there? Yeah, no, there, there have not been... Uh, careful prospective studies, you, you'd ha- it'd be hard to justify that yeah. sort of thing following a polyp sure. without taking it out. Uh-huh. But we know, based on older studies where they were doing colon x-ray still, where we had opportunities to follow polyps, many of them actually regress and disappear over hmm. time. Not all of them grow up. And, but once they get to a certain size, they seem, their growth seems to be accelerated. You know, before we talk about screening options, uh, and I know there are some newer ones that, and, and some pretty exciting that I know, uh, we want to talk to you about. Let's talk about, are there empty, any symptoms? Are, is there anything that might tip a person off uh, to the fact that they in fact have colon cancer? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, currently, even in the face of screening, 60% of all colorectal cancers that are diagnosed present because of symptoms. Really? And, uh, yeah. We would like to change that to zero and detect them before symptoms. Sure. Uh, with those that are symptomatic, the average stage is more advanced by quite a large margin than if you detect it before symptoms. Meaning it's already spread. Right. But it's not universal. And, you know, some sometimes rectal bleeding, for example, is a common presenting symptom, uh, altered stool pattern, uh, weight loss, cramping abdominal pain. Uh, 
many of those are still in a curable stage, and with those symptoms, those heralding symptoms, uh, patients should should talk to their healthcare provider. Does it make a difference which of those symptoms presents first, or is there usually it starts with you know cramping and then it becomes mm-hmm. you know is yeah. there a pattern? Well, it depends on where the tumor is located mm-hmm. within the colon. Uh, lesions that are closer to the rectum often present with mm-hmm. bright red rectal bleeding with the bowel movement. Uh, lesions that are farther to the far side near the so-called cecum, mm-hmm. uh, the bleeding is often not visible to the eye, and patients may present with fatigue and iron deficiency from chronic blood loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it sort of depends. Our guest is gastroenterologist and colon cancer expert, Dr. David Alquist. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about screening options for colon cancer, plus treatment of colon cancer and survival rates. Plus, we got a myth or matter of fact, huh? That's right. Colorectal cancer is a man's disease. Is that a myth or a fact? We'll find out when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our topic, colon cancer, and we're talking with an expert from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. David Alquist. We'll talk in a minute about uh, the screening options to find those polyps before they turn into cancer. But first, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Colorectal cancer is a man's disease. Is that a myth <laughs> or a fact, Dr. Alquist? It is an absolute myth. Uh, combining the, the sexes, Colorectal cancer is the number two cancer killer. It tends to occur a little bit later in women than in men, but over a lifetime, the lifetime risk is about the same between men and women. Uh, Women live a little bit longer, and therefore the lifetime Mm -hmm. incidence is about the same. Women tend to have cancers more on the right side Hmm. than the left side, and that may influence again how how it presents. The beginning of the colon rather than the end of the colon. Yes, exactly okay. right. Uh, but you're not off the hook. No, that's, I, I, I think believe me. I, I, think some, I think some people do believe that, that is, it is a man's disease, but in mm-hmm. fact, obviously not. Right. And what about hereditary uh, factors? Is there, what, what role do genetics play? Mm-hmm. They, they play a very important role. Um, in some inherited conditions, such as Lynch syndrome or familial polyposis, there's a very high likelihood because of the genetic change that you were born with of having colon cancer during your lifetime. In some cases, the risk becomes higher than 80%. And so it's very critical to identify those families or kindreds with carrying those risks. But for the the average population, if you have uh, a close relative, such as a parent, a sibling, or a child with colorectal cancer, that increases your likelihood. Uh, All right. Now, you indicated earlier that a significant portion of the population has never been screened for colon cancer, and you want to change that, and we all want to see that change. So what are the options to get screened? Yeah. Well, there's there's a... uh, a quiver of arrows now that uh, <laughs> patients can choose from. Uh, and this quiver has recently been updated by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. And uh, the so-called conventional screening approaches have been colonoscopy and fecal blood testing, uh, to a less extent, sigmoidoscopy. The newer approaches now include stool DNA testing and 
uh, CT colonography, which is a, a CT X-ray approach to uh, colon screening. So you don't have to have the, the tube uh, mm-hmm. up your rectum and examine mm-hmm. your colon, but you still have to, have to yeah. prep, right? The prep <laughs> is the bad part, prep. right? Yeah. Well, You can tell I haven't had my first colonoscopy. <laughs> yeah, but, it's yeah. important. Colonoscopy, when it's well done, is an excellent approach. Uh, there is uh, operator dependency, and the, the quality mm-hmm. does vary across operators, but there is a new tool now. Uh, colonoscopy was uh, an issue for participation in that uh, in some surveys up to half of all respondents <laughs> say they they are unwilling or unable to take colonoscopy and for many working people taking two days off of work that is not reimbursed is an insurmountable barrier to screening and so we at Mayo Clinic have taken uh, an active role in trying to make a difference here and we, we have co-developed a new approach that's non-invasive. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a stool DNA test. Uh, it's highly accurate. It's operator or user friendly. <laughs> and it's readily accessible. The accuracy in, in two very large population studies in the screening setting, the sensitivity for early stage cancer in one was 94%. In the other, it was 100% compared to colonoscopy. Because in the stool sample, it shows, is there blood in there? Is it uh, DNA that shows up in there? What what are you looking for? We have learned that uh, cancers and polyps Mm -hmm. shed cells into the passageway, and they contain a DNA abnormality that represents a signature Mm. for for their presence, and we can measure that in the stool. And so this test also detects large polyps with high sensitivity. It doesn't require a bowel prep. There's no medication or diet restriction, and you can do it from home. You don't have to miss work, and it goes wherever the mail goes. Access should be unlimited. Well, and also the reimbursement is pretty good. Uh, Most insurance companies, uh, Mm -hmm. Medicare, Mm -hmm. uh, does reimburse for this test, correct? Yes. When FDA approved this test, CMS, which is Medicare, did the first ever parallel review, and they approved it as well. So it's it's fully covered by Medicare. Over half of the insurance companies now cover it by by the end of this year or into 2018, all insurance companies should, should be covering it, yes. Fabulous. And uh, you do have to have your doctor order it, though, correct? Yes. You can't order it yourself. That's true for any screening test for colorectal cancer. All right. So you you, uh, put a sample into a box, have the UPS guy come come pick it up, and you're done. And how long does it take to get the result? Uh, Once the sample gets to the lab, the turnaround is is less than a week, uh, several days. Um, yeah, you you put the sample in the in the collecting device. That's that's well said, Tom. The box. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 from a patient standpoint. The the kit has a very simple collection device that mounts sure. to the toilet. The sample is is put into the container. The lid is screwed on, and it's shipped in the same container to the lab. I would imagine, though, as the case, the incidences of colon cancer continue to rise, that there are family members that say, I'm I'm all in with testing. Where are we going to start? And, and mm-hmm. they don't even care if it's Cologuard or colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to help with people's willingness to go through testing, or is mm-hmm. that not happening? Well, we, we looked at the first 100,000 Cologuard tests that were offered 
post-approval. 42% of those patients had never been screened mm. before, and that Incredible. was across all ages. That was exactly what we were hoping for. Sure. Uh, and so we, we hope that uh, having access to a, to a test that does not disrupt work, that doesn't require change in daily activities, will make a difference in compliance. And at the end of the day, it's participation rates that count. Let's say you do a thousand tests. How many are going to end up being a positive? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, f- the positivity rate is about thirteen percent. Wow! Uh, but many of those patients have real disease. Mostly polyps are common, and the test detects the large polyps. Out of a thousand patients, five to seven will have curable stage colon cancer without symptoms. Wow. Curable stage. Pre-symptomatic. So, let's say that, uh, unfortunately, it is diagnosed as being cancerous, whether it's mm-hmm. through Cologuard testing or a colonoscopy. What, how are patients, patients treated? Yeah. Well, if it's detected at the earliest stage, before symptoms, some of those cancers are actually in polyps, and they can be treated endoscopically without conventional mm-hmm. So you surgery. mean through the colonoscopy? Through the colonoscopy. You remove the, the polyps. Yes. Uh, Conventional surgery, there are many approaches there, depending on, again, where the tumor is located. Uh, it doesn't, in, in most cases, it does not require a colostomy. Fewer than 10% of all patients with colorectal cancer require a colostomy. That's, wow. a, that's a myth that's out there. In most patients, their that's bowel the function case. is the same after surgery as before. And if the cancer has spread, is there usually, there are other modalities involved like chemotherapy, maybe radiation, but chemotherapy, the mainstay of, of, of metastatic or colon cancer that has spread? Yes, yes, and there's a lot of progress along those lines. And even with metastatic cancer, if, if, the, if the spread is early and localized, that can be cured also by surgery. For example, a solitary metastasis to the liver or to the lung. That, if that's all there is, that can be cured with additional resection outside of the colon. Boy, there's so much reason for uh, hope, but obviously the key is to find it early. Tom, it's our, it's our goal, it's our hope to see colorectal cancer become one of the least common cancer killers in this country. And I think with accurate tools broadly and widely used, that's an achievable goal. Dr. David Alquist, gastroenterologist, colon cancer expert at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about in utero surgery to correct birth defects. And later on in the show, how video visits are being used for routine surgical follow-up. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Atopic dermatitis, or eczema, is a common condition that makes your skin red and itchy. It's common in children, but can occur at any age. Atopic dermatitis is long-lasting and tends to flare periodically and then subside. It may be accompanied by asthma or hay fever. No cure has been found for atopic dermatitis, but treatments and self-care measures can relieve itching and prevent new outbreaks. For example, it helps to avoid harsh soaps and other irritants, to apply medicated creams or ointments, and to moisturize your skin. Now, to help reduce itching and soothe inflamed skin, try these self-care measures. Take an oral allergy or anti-itch medication. Take a bleach bath. 
Apply an anti-itch cream or calamine lotion to the affected area. Moisturize your skin at least twice a day. Avoid scratching. Apply cool, wet compresses. Take a warm bath. Choose mild soaps without dyes or perfumes. Use a humidifier. Wear cool, smooth clothes. And see your doctor if your atopic dermatitis symptoms distract you from your daily routines or prevent you from sleeping. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, a birth defect is a problem that happens while a baby is developing inside the mother's body. You probably knew that. I do, yes. The term, the medical term, is in utero. Well, according to the National Institutes of Health, one out of every 33 babies in the United States is born with a birth defect. Most birth defects happen during the first three months of pregnancy. Some birth defects are mild or even unnoticeable, but severe birth defects can be life-altering for the entire family. You know, but now there's sometimes a way out. <laughs> Fetal surgery. It's a procedure in which an operation is actually performed on an unborn baby to improve their long-term outcome. Not just any fetal surgeon. Here to discuss surgical interventions for birth defects is fetal surgeon Dr. Rodrigo Ruano. Welcome to the program. Welcome to Mayo Clinic. It's great to meet you, Dr. Ruano. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here. It's especially nice to meet you because you are the first fetal surgeon I've ever met. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. How many of there can't be too many in the in the world, are there? I don't think so. I think there are some uh, physicians that can provide who can provide those uh, type of surgeries. Yeah. So, how do you train to become a fetal surgeon? <laughs> That's a long story. I an obstetrician, so I deal with pregnant patients, and then uh, I. Learned maternal fetal medicine. I went to France, to Paris. I did my fellowship there, my training there. Uh, I did not know before I met you that there was such a thing as a fetal and maternal medicine group at Mayo Clinic. What do, what do you do? Thank you for your question. So the maternal fetal group, in reality, we take care of mothers with high-risk pregnancies. For example, if a patient has a cardiac uh, disease uh, or patient has diabetes, so we take care of them too. Her. And then if we ha- the fetus has a problem, we, we take care of the, the fetus too. So we do maternal and fetal uh, medicine together. So, Dr. Ruano, tell us how you make the diagnosis of these conditions so that you can ultimately do surgery to fix them. That's very important. So uh, in order to, for us to treat the babies, of course, we need to have a com- complete correct diagnosis. So the diagnosis is based on a fetal ultrasound that we, we usually we do around 20 weeks, 20 to 22 weeks. Then, of course, once we have this d- diagnosis, then we recommend that the patient would be referred as soon as possible to a center like ours that we can provide the follow-up and we can investigate more the, the disease. So we can confirm the disease. We can check the baby's heart. By doing fetal echocardiogram, we can do, we can check if the, the fetus has a genetic anomaly before that because we need to exclude those, those problems. And once we def- and then we can also perform on the fetal magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, to, to evaluate the size of the lungs. And then once we have all these accomplished, the patient will discuss with all the team, then we, we can offer like fetal intervention. They send them to you and you fix them. There are um, four surgeries that you perform. Yes. Can you explain explain each of them to us? What do you do? Okay, so the first uh, procedure uh, that uh, I perform is the fetoscopic laser ablation for twin-twin transition syndrome. So twin-twin transition syndrome is uh, it's not a very common 
situation that we have uh, one placenta for two babies. So we have identical twins. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, when, once we have one placenta, sometimes, well, usually they share connections, uh, blood connections, and sometimes those connections are not balanced. So one fetus receives too much blood flow and the other one does not receive uh, mm. enough blood. In- Previously, the mother then would have lost, probably oh, lost that other than, twin. More than 80% of the time, they would lost, uh, they would lose the, 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 the babies. So what do you Both do? Babies? Both they babies? Both oh, babies. So you have one placenta, two babies. Yes. And how do you fix that? So we put, uh, we introduce a very tiny scope, a telescope or camera inside the uterus, and then we use, we identify those connections on the placental surf- surface, and then using a cold laser, we, we can uh, coagulate those vessels and we can stop that, that problem. So that's uh, when we get to what Will and Charlie Mayo used to do. They did not have the telescopic. They did not have the laser. These are tools that are relatively new that a surgeon such as yourself now can use that previously were not available. Yes. So uh, And the technique, too. So we, we improved a lot the technique. Before, we used to do not selective ablation. Now we identified specifically which vessels mm-hmm. are causing the problem. So, so the survival rate after this procedure increased improved a lot. All right, and that, that operation is called a twin-twin what? So the operation called fetoscopic laser ablation. Uh, the disease is twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. Twin-to-twin twin transfusion syndrome. Yes. All, All right. right. It's complicated. The, yeah, what's the next one? <laughs> so the next one that we do is that uh, we, we close the spinal beef uh, defect. So some of those babies, uh, they can have an open spinal bifida. That means the nerves can be Exposed, exposed to the amniotic fluid. So uh, that the nerves aren't covered like they should be by normal soft tissue. Yes. Uh, and they are more in contact, they are clo- in a closer con- contact with the amniotic fluid and then this can cause more problems, to the, more damage to the, to the brain and to the neurons. Oh, so that's why you do it uh, in utero yes. instead of waiting until after the baby is born. Yes. That's, that's what we believe and it was proved that that's the the reason for that. Yeah. So it helps their brain to develop. Yes. Ah. So uh, once we close in utero, we can even improve the brain situation. For example, the, the Chiari malformation, that means that posterior part of the brain comes down because it's leaking fluid. So we can stop that process and before the baby is born, we can reverse that situation. And how do you close the defect? You sew up the tissues over top of the ex- uh, nerves that are hanging out in the breeze, huh? So this in the amniotic fluid. Yeah, we're doing co- in we have a big team. It's a multidisciplinary uh, approach. So first, we 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 open the uterus of the patient. We expose the the the, the fetal back, the baby's back, and then the neurosurgeon close the the defect or the problem exactly that he would do after birth. All right, we're ready for number three. <laughs> so number three is that when once we have a, a a baby, especially a boy that has an obstruction in the bladder, we call retro obstruction or lower urinary tract obstruction. And then uh, since the fetus cannot urinate anymore, so then the, um, the amount of amniotic fluid around the, the baby will reduce. So that I- impacts the lung development, and then the lungs will be smaller. So those babies, they can die after birth. Mm. And the second problem is that uh, the urine uh, remains inside the bladder, and it comes back to the kidneys, and we can have uh, the kidneys can become dilated, and it can be sick. Because the urine can't get out. Yes. Because then, of the obstruction. Yeah. And then they, these babies, some then they survive without treatment and they can have 
they will need to have dialysis or transplant after birth. So what we can do, we can first try to bypass the obstruction using a small shunt, or I can put a scope inside and try to, see, to identify the cause of the obstruction and try to fix the cause of the obstruction. And then we can improve the amount of amniotic fluid around the baby so the lungs can develop, the baby can survive, and we reduce uh, significantly the chance of having renal uh, problems and dialysis. Kidney problem. Yes. Renal. Okay. And uh, number four? Number four is my favorite because that's why I, I have <laughs> studied the best a lot. For last. Yeah. Yes. Is that uh, some babies, they have uh, something called as congenital diaphragmatic hernia. That is a hole in the diaphragm, which is a muscle that separates the chest and the belly. And this muscle is very important for us to breathe after birth. But the main problem is that uh, once we have the, that hole, the organs from the belly comes up. Into the chest. In, into the chest, mm-hmm. and then it causes compression, uh, compress the lungs and the heart. Mm-hmm. So especially the lungs, and then we don't have enough lung development. So, like the spina bifida, if that is not fixed, that baby is born with that birth defect. What happens to a baby that is born without that diaphragmatic hernia fixed? Yes. Yeah, the difference is that the, if the baby is born with the diaphragmatic hernia, severe form, the lungs are so, so small that it's sometimes the baby cannot survive. Oh. Or they, the baby will need treatment to try to see if we can fix that, and then maybe the baby will have lots of complications related to the the lungs. During which trimester do you do this fetal surgery? So the surgery that we do, we, we introduce a very tiny scope inside around 22 to 29 weeks. From 22 to 29 weeks, we introduce a very tiny scope, telescope, inside the amniotic cavity, the fluid around the baby, just puncture the, the maternal belly. We, we use even local anesthesia nowadays, and then we, we introduce the, we advance those, that, that scope inside the, the baby's mouth. And then we go inside the, the trachea, which is the... Windpipe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then we, we just put a small balloon inside, a detachable balloon. We live there for more five or four to six weeks. And this treatment will promote the lungs, will promote growth of the lungs. And then this baby will have a still congenital diaphragmatic hernia, but will have a less severe uh, pulmonary hypoplasia. That means the lungs will be better. And then the chance of survival will increase a lot. So you go into the uterus... Through the baby's mouth, down into the lungs. That doesn't even seem possible. Yes. Uh, so uh, in the past, it was not possible. When they started this procedure, they need to open the uterus, put a, cl- a clip to to clip the, to occlude the trachea. Nowadays, we just do a, like a tiny procedure, a very uh, soft, small procedure. We put a s- small telescope inside, and we can see where the trachea is. When we put on a, we, uh, we leave a balloon there, and we leave for fourth for six weeks, and then uh, the lungs, they grow. It's all pretty incredible. Fetal surgeon, Dr. Rodrigo Ruano, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for your invitation. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about a pilot study that's using technology to connect patients with their doctors. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, if you're like most patients and you have surgery, whatever it might be, you know what happens afterwards. Where would you really like to be? Well, it's at home. Back at home, that's right. I mean, the hospital is really no fun. But at some point, even if you go home relatively early after your surgery, you need to go back in general to to see your physician. They want to know how you're doing. You either have to go to the clinic or the hospital. But you know what? Maybe. 
just maybe there may be an alternative. It may be that you don't have to travel all the way back to see your doctor. That's right. A new pilot study at Mayo Clinic is looking to make things easier for patients. Video visits where a patient sees his or her doctor, not in person, but via video from the comfort of their own home. Here to discuss the pilot study is thoracic surgeon and vice chair of the Department of Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Stephen Cassavy. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cassavy. Thanks for having me here. Dr. Cassavy, so nice to see you. You know, this makes so much sense, doesn't it? Who came up with the idea? Well, I came up with the idea after seeing patients in clinic. And our patients come from very far away occasionally. We have patients from the local area, but we also have patients from very far away. And as you said, surgeons have it ingrained in us that we want to know how our patients are doing, make sure that what we've done has been well-received and the patient's doing well. Follow-up after surgery is part of what we do. But bringing people back for what is usually, if things have gone well in surgery, a very anticlimactic visit is, is a very tough thing when uh, these patients are coming from 700 miles away. Yeah. So how many patients have you studied? Through the first pilot, we put 111 patients through this. Uh, put it through. They, they were very sure. happy to go through this because uh, they were able to stay at home. And how much travel, how many miles were saved because of the, just your pilot study? So I have to look back and uh, just to make sure it was somewhere around uh, 160,000 miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For 100 huh? patients. Yeah, that's, that's almost seven circumferences of the earth. No, it's no wonder the price of oil is down. Huh? <laughs> so how do you decide, and I assume you make this decision either before you do the surgery or sometimes uh, shortly thereafter, how do you decide who it's okay to do that for, who doesn't need to come back, and who does? So it's the majority of patients who qualify for this. It's someone who's uh, been operated on for whom things went well during the surgery and, and in, the post, in the early postoperative period in the hospital where you don't expect there to be a problem. If there's another reason for them to come back to the clinic, other appointments that they're going to take uh, that they need for follow-up, then it's probably not uh, of use for them. But if these are people who could get back to their life and avoid the, the travel here for that anticlimactic visit, then they're up for this. But even if a patient, you know, like you said, that they've got other tests that need to be done, even if it's just, you know, you need a blood draw and see, I mean, that could easily be done at home. They could go to their local clinic, wherever they are, just get that blood test and then do the video visit with you. Sure, absolutely. In, in the type of surgery I do, thoracic surgery or chest surgery, we often follow up with a chest x-ray. Well, they get that done locally. And uh, nowadays with the internet, uh, that uh, can be transmitted to us uh, either by internet or by uh, uh, FedExing the, uh, sure. the CD. So we have the images to look at at the time of the video visit. Well, it's also interesting that you're able to do this uh, because of what you do. I mean, what you do, you you don't do Mickey Mouse surgery. This is not hangnail surgery. I mean, this is chest surgery. It's big time. Well, I appreciate that coming from you. You do big <laughs> surgery too. It's funny because our operating rooms are right next to each other. Ah, yeah, yes. we keep an eye on each other. Good. Yeah. It can be done with virtually any type of surgical procedure where you have follow up. And surgeons know who who this would apply to because sure. those visits that we see people for are important to make sure that things are okay, but they're often anticlimactic. How secure is this video? I mean, is this just like a Skype thing? Or? So it's very similar to Skype, but we went the extra mile because we have regulations in healthcare about uh, privacy and oh, security. Sure. And uh, we didn't want to do this through FaceTime where all of the data goes through Cupertino, California. Sure. Um, we partnered with a, an outside informatics group, and 
came up with a, a secure way of doing this. Are you going to do another pilot, or is this ready to be instituted? So we're we're working with the the Mayo uh, compliance people, uh, people at Mayo Clinic, in terms of uh, the legal. Uh, issues of uh, of looking after patients across borders. And what we've come up with is if these are patients who you've already seen, if you would otherwise be able to telephone them, then why not video? And so I think that uh, although technology was starting to outstrip regulations, regulatory folks are starting to realize the, that this makes common sense. Is part of the reason you're able to do this because uh, a fair number of things that you do are less invasive than they used to? I mean, you used to always have to open the chest to do anything, but now you do a fair amount of stuff through the scope, right? I think a lot of stuff is, is now able to be done minimally invasively. It makes for a less impact physically on the patient. So I think that that is... Uh, part of it, but this type of follow-up can be done with even major uh, incisional surgery. So even those patients can you can video them afterwards, and they don't necessarily have to come back. It it underlines the importance of the follow-up because it's not just a hey, how you doing, you look fine. There are some key questions, and for each operation, there are different key questions and key points that you want to ascertain. So for a, an esophagectomy patient, you want to know how they're swallowing. You want to know how their weight is, how stable their weight is. All of these kind of things are important to follow up. So it, it really underlines the importance of that uh, keeping track of your patient. But now the necessity of bringing them back here is in question and can be uh, worked with. Well, you said even a 700-mile drive. There's a lot of time that could be saved by doing this, no matter how far a patient is traveling. Absolutely. So obviously the, the larger the distance, the more impact. But... Uh, we're really recognizing that the patient's time is important, and, and that's why it's impo- important for them. It's really in the patient's best interest. There's a little note here that says there might be some connection between what you're doing and Will and Charlie Mayo. So I, I'm, a, I'm a student of history a bit, and I was looking back, and I found an old article in uh, the precursor to the Rochester local newspaper. It's an article from back in December of 1879. And it describes the first telephone that was set up in Rochester, Minnesota. In fact, constructed by the 14-year-old Charlie Mayo for his dad, who was the, the doctor. The first telephone in town. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Mayos. And, and, uh, and it describes in, in some detail how to access this and, and how you would use it. And what was telling to me was the final lines of the, of the article. And I'll read them out to you. This will prove not only a convenience, but a positive benefit to both the doctor and his patients. <laughs> and I thought that rung true of the video visit pilot as well. Incredible. You're doing the same thing, only in a little more sophisticated way. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Cassavy, thoracic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with you. Video visits. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. 
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.